The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association takes this time to thank our 2023 corporate sponsors. Bristol Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, BioMarin, Tanaya Therapeutics, Edgewise Therapeutics, and Embrya. And thank you to our 2023 annual patient meeting sponsors. Bristol Myers Squibb, BioMarin, Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya Therapeutics, Edgewise Therapeutics, Rocket Pharmaceuticals, and Alnylam Pharmaceuticals, with additional funding provided by the J.T. Babbitt Foundation. It is December 22nd, 2023. Welcome to Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA and the final podcast of 2023, concluding season three. We will begin season four in January. And today I am joined by Dr. Stephen Allman from the Mayo Clinic, in Rochester, Minnesota. Steve and I have been podcasting together for quite some time now. We love to get into discussions with y'all and hear your questions. Today, the topic of the month, we're rounding out the year. It's kind of a reflection back and a look at where we are and kind of talking about holidays and balance and managing HCM through the holidays, which can be a little challenging for some people. Good morning, Dr. Amon. What's going on in Minnesota today? Good morning, Lisa. So great to be back with you. Um, we are having drizzly gray, not cold enough for snow weather entering the holiday weekend, which is a little bit sad. I guess we can be thankful it's warm as well, so there's no ice either. Yeah, we had torrential downpours in New Jersey over the past couple of days and, and flooding and actual like small landslides of trees going down mountains. So it's a little bit bizarre weather here in Jersey. I've got puddles in my backyard, not snow. So we're just going to tell the little kids that Frosty just melted. He'll come back later. <laughs> but he comes back with magic. The rainy puddles, you can find those fun too. Yep. So I hope everybody's ready for the holidays because you ain't got much more time to get ready. We're ready. All the kids are descending on the house in the next 12-ish hours. So it'll be good. Fantastic. We've got the whole crew coming into my house as well and a lot of fun and a lot of family time, which does include things like maybe eating a little heavier, maybe having an extra drink. And we just want to remind people with HCM, moderation is key. You want to talk a little bit about moderating through the holidays? <laughs> yeah. So, so moderating is good for people of all walks, whether they have a diagnosis or not. It's good to have fun and interact with our families, but it's also easy to let things get out of control when we're having that much fun. Moderation means go for walks. You know, you're not going to have as much time or your, your house is going to be completely disrupted by family there. So your workout space isn't there. So go outside and get a walk in. It means watch your food intake. We all have lots and lots of great food this time of the year. Remember to eat reasonable portions and to savor what you've got and not, not gorge yourself. Alcohol is obviously a fun and troublesome topic for everybody. Again, one to two drinks a night is probably what we should all be getting. There's good evidence that it disrupts your sleep. It's going to make you crankier the next day, not able to handle those tense family conversations. So it's just really important that you keep your guardrails up in terms of not overindulging and all those kind of things. And hydration, hydration, hydration. Particularly for those of you who have obstructive HCM, it's important. It's really important to hydrate Everyone else, it's also important to hydrate, but you're going to have more symptoms if you don't hydrate and you drink too much alcohol. Exactly. What we want to make sure everybody remembers is that you kind of got to pace yourself. It's hard enough to pace yourself with HCM throughout the year, but when everybody's got demands and there's parties and there's food and there's all this stuff, it's okay to, to sit back and let somebody else take the lead or even just stay home for a little while and get a little extra rest before you go out to the party and don't stay out too, too late. I like to think about everything in, in the moderation sense. I need my Christmas desserts. I need my Norwegian caramel pudding, my creme kaga. I need my wine on Christmas. I need my prime rib on Christmas. Like there's things I need on Christmas, but this year we're going much smaller. Oh, did, did you hear what happened to me earlier this month? Uh, gosh, I can't wait. Okay, so this, a, a couple of people may have already heard this story in a previous podcast, but I went to a great conference. Turns out that it's my favorite conference of the year, Cardiovascular Clinical Trialists in DC. Fantastic meeting there with the FDA. Robert Califf was a table away from me at the dinner. There was a salad in front of me. I don't typically eat salads out because, you know, I'm a 
transplant patient and I'm worried. But the FDA was in the room, so I felt I was covered. I got mm-hmm. E. coli. Oh, no. I spent three days in the hospital in December. Oh, um, no. It was not pretty. I'm giving you also all a shout out for my transplant brethren. If you're going to be eating out, make sure you're not eating foods that have been passed around a lot, things that have been open, not temperature controlled. E. coli is real and it can happen in, in the cleanest of places where yep. you never expect it. So just remember if you're immunocompromised, to just keep an eye on that over the holiday season. In other news, we're coming to the end of 2023. It's kind of been a big year in HCM. Granted, Zios hit the market in 22, but it kind of ramped up in 23. We had our first gene therapy delivered in HCM. We had more content and meeting and educational materials from various sources. What do you think was the most important HCM milestone marker in 23. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head, actually. I think that it was Mavicampton being released into the wild and clinical centers really getting their, you know, up to their necks in trying to manage patients on Mavicampton. So we get a better sense of how we have to operationalize that. 22, like you said, approved end of April, you know, six months later, there still was just barely getting started for for most clinical practices. But in 23, we're now seeing a lot of patients who are informed about it. They're coming in and asking questions about it. And then we're all still struggling with how to manage the logistics of the REMS program. And for those of you who don't know, that's the safety monitoring that was put in place by the FDA with the approval, which requires monthly check-ins for the patients, seven echoes the first year that they are taking the medication and four every year thereafter. And and you have to hit windows to get the prescription renewed. So it's a lot of logistic wrangling that all the clinics are trying to come up with best practices so that that's not the barrier to using the this agent. I think that is the, the number one thing that really happened in 23. We're also learning that, as you might have predicted, if you looked at the details in the trials, that not every patient benefits. Some people get partial benefit and some get none. I've had some patients who have had to stop it because of symptomatic side effects. I've had some patients who have had to stop it because of the ejection fraction problem. And some people have just decided they don't want to keep on taking a medication lifelong that requires this level of intensity of follow-up. So, you know, it's a great tool in our toolkit. We're learning how to use it better. And we're starting to see the realities uh, in practice. I think that was really well put. The questions to the HCMA have changed this year. It's how do I know if it's going to work? A myosin inhibitor, should I do a trial or should I go on the approved drug? Why would mm-hmm. I go on a trial if there is an approved drug? Like there's been a lot of good questions mm-hmm. and these trials are amping up. It's going to be a challenging time to get enough people to do the trials that are still needed for the non-obstructeds. It's going to be a challenge to really figure out like we have with ICD placement. It took mm-hmm. what? 15 solid years to come up with good risk factors that we could lean on and have some good mm-hmm. data on. So I think we all have to be patient in figuring out who is the optimal patient. And we're all learning together. So it requires a little bit of patience from the patient and a little bit of scientific evaluation of each anatomy. And then we got to put the bigger picture together. Who is the yep. best patient and who might not do well here and may go on to another drug? or to surgery, or to alcohol ablation. Um, I think these are all critical points. And I think we need to make sure that everybody's staying on track with this throughout the year. That's myosin inhibitors. That's where we are. What are you thinking about the trials and how they're moving along in the, both in the CYTO and the BMS trials? Yeah, Uh, Yeah, I mean, a lot of interesting stuff that's going to come out. So for the second myosin inhibitor, Afikamptin, it is undergoing clinical trials. It's got some different pharmacokinetics, which is how many doses you take before you get effects, all these types of things. It'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Does it have the same upsides and downsides as Mavicamptin? Is this a class of agent effect or is it unique to Mavicampton and, and Afikampton is going to have its own unique features? Time will tell once those trials come out. Super interested to see if these agents have benefits for our patients with non-obstructive HCM. Now remember, 
clinical trials are usually focused on patients who have symptoms initially. So we're talking about people who have non-obstructive HCM and have symptoms of shortness of breath, heart failure type symptoms, and looking to see if these agents can reverse that. The follow-on studies, assuming these show benefits, you start to move the, the therapies, in this case a drug, into less and less symptomatic people. And, and so we're, we're going to see a number of follow-on trials coming in the next few years. I would say the other big thing that is of a lot of interest amongst you know my peers in, in the HCM community are with the new guidelines in the heart failure committee for heart failure preserved ejection fraction, do our non-obstructive patients with heart failure symptoms simply represent a subset of HEFPEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? And if so, we're now going to be seeing trials of the agents that are approved for that group of patients, such as the SGLT2 inhibitors. For those of you who don't know what those are, those are medications designed for type 2 diabetics that have been shown to improve heart failure symptoms and reduce heart failure admissions, even in patients who don't have diabetes. Popularly, you've seen them on TV commercials in the form of Jardians and Farsiga. There are others, and there's uh, new ones being released all the time. So there is a clinical trial starting in 24, looking specifically at HCM patients. So we'll be very excited to see if we can prove that this is also a beneficial tool for our patients who don't have outflow tract obstruction. So late breaking news here at the HCMA, I kind of alluded to it earlier this month, but in 2024, the HCMA will be building out educational content and programming around HEFPATH because it makes sense. There's no other advocacy organization in this space, and there's going to be a lot of crossover between HEFPATH and HCM because like you just alluded to, many HEFPATHs may be HCM and some HCMs may be HEFPATHs. And we got to cross those over. As we move into this new era of understanding heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which once the, once the noise quiets down, I'll have you explain a little bit more what we're talking about there. There are some crossovers that are really important. Drugs that you've all seen advertised very harshly, and Tresto is one are working in this HEFPAFI group and the Jardians and the Farsiga. We're talking with a new company, Lexicon, about some of the drugs that they're working on with SGLT1-2 crossover molecules. So there's, there's no lack of new stuff coming. And if you're new to the community, you're probably coming in going, there's just so much going on here. We've been waiting for 25, 30 years to get everybody to come to see us and they're here now, and it's gonna get a little confusing. We're doing our best to try to keep it nice and organized for people to understand what's coming up next, helping to educate in that process, but it's a complicated path that we're on right now. And we're just talking about the molecules. Can you explain what HEFPATH and why it's got such a terrible name? Yeah, so the whole heart failure world, you know, can, is very much semantics and all these types of things. So heart failure, definitionally is when the heart can't produce enough blood to the rest of the body to keep you active and those kind of things, or it takes too much pressure to fill your heart. Classic original heart failure patients were patients who had dilated hearts that didn't contract very well, which you may have heard is dilated cardiomyopathy. These were weak heart muscles, and they are the prototypical heart failure patients. Then going back 10 to 20 years ago, there became this realization. There were people who had clear heart failure symptoms, so fluid in their lungs, shortness of breath when they exerted themselves, swelling in their feet and ankles, who did not have a weak heart muscle. Their heart muscle had a normal ejection fraction. And that is the heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or HFPEF, HEFPEF, that then we now recognize almost as more than half of patients who have heart failure symptoms out in the real world. How does that all apply to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? I think we probably need to take a step back and and look at some of the ways we talk about patients who have symptoms with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I think that we should not call the symptoms that are attributable to outflow tract obstruction heart failure. We've gotten loose with that language. It technically is a form of heart failure. The heart is not producing what it can without causing symptoms. But think about valvular heart disease, aortic valve stenosis, mitral valve regurgitation. Those are forms of heart failure because the, the heart isn't working normally, but we don't refer to that as 
heart failure. We refer to that as aortic valve stenosis or mitral regurgitation. And that's where a lot of our patients come in confused. Am I in heart failure? I'm like, well, technically, yes. But the reality is you have dynamic outflow tract obstruction and we have lots of ways we can make you better with that. And that's, that's not really the same heart failure that we're talking about in terms of people who have a reduced ejection fraction or whose heart muscle is so stiff that it can't fill appropriately. And so I think that we ought to talk about obstructive HCM, non-obstructive HCM with preserved ejection fraction and non-obstructive HCM with reduced ejection fraction and think about those as our treatment strategies going, you know, as, we, as our categories to help treat patients. And that will take some of the confusion out of the way. But so I'll pause there, Lisa, and see if you have a question and I can talk some more about the mechanisms of HEFPEF because I think it's important for people to understand that because there's things they can do as part of lifestyle that can help treat that. I'll go back a year. Whether or not, it was a year ago that we were in Boston almost, right? Or 11 months ago. So there was a meeting that you and I were both speaking at, the HEFPEF HCM Drug Discovery Summit. I found it really interesting that every company that went up and gave a presentation described HEFPEF a little bit differently. Like, what is it? What isn't it? And I think they're still defining some of those diagnostic criteria. So we know diabetes, obesity, and hypertension can lead to a stiffened heart wall. Can you talk a little bit more about how that trio causes that problem and how it's different than genetic HCM? Yeah, so so there's there's a there's a bunch of things that can lead to that that stiffness that we talk about. So Again, just for those of you who aren't as familiar with this, when the heart contracts, when it is going to get blood in for the next heartbeat, in a normal heart, it almost springs open and sucks blood into it to get ready for the next heartbeat. Just a thick, a thicker heart wall is inherently stiffer. It doesn't accept blood quite as well. Think about cheap balloons at the dime store versus the heavier, you know, weight walled balloons. It takes more pressure to blow it up. Same thing, thick heart muscle, harder to fill up than a thin-walled, normal thickness heart muscle. There's other things that contribute to that. So the current theory of HEFPEF in general is that it's really a bunch of things that are based on a pro-inflammatory state. So if you're not getting enough sleep, if you're under too much stress, if your diet isn't right and you're eating pro-inflammatory foods, too much alcohol, it's inflammatory, all these kind of things can lead to this state of stiffness in the heart muscle, maybe even some excess fibrosis in between the cells of the heart muscle, et cetera. Add in in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where we've learned over the years and is the target for the cardiac myosin inhibitors, that at the cellular level, there's two proteins, actin and myosin, that grab each other and then contract to make a contraction, and then they have to let go of each other so the heart muscle can relax. Well, we know in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy now that actin and myosin hang on to each other too well. And so that is a delaying or impairing the relaxation phase of the heart. So all of those things can cause symptoms in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It doesn't cause symptoms in every patient, but this is why we have such interest in the cardiac myosin inhibitors. Will they actually move people towards more normal relaxation and will that help them have symptom relief or prevent the development of symptoms in the future. So I haven't had a chance to discuss this with you yet, but there's a new research tool out of Moon's group in in UK, Mm -hmm. um, the HCM wall measurement calculator. And I think there is something here that I'm really happy is here. I can't wait until this is validated a little bit more. Wall thickness, we've used this number. We came up with a number 1.5 or greater is HCM and anything less than that probably isn't, but maybe could be if there's a gene and there's this and there's that. So we've been using the tool since the beginning of November when I found out about it at AHA. And for smaller women, I think we've been underdiagnosing them for many, many years. And for large men, we might be overdiagnosing some. Yep. And I like the idea that we're getting down to personalized wall measurements. Have you guys thought about a way to look at this at Mayo differently, or have you looked at this data yet? I haven't looked at that data specifically. I remember you and Ashley published an article about this 15 years ago about, you know, we need to normalize the measurement of all cardiac structures to the size of the human being and perhaps the sex of the human being and or the ethnicity of the human being because there are differences. And I think that we clinically do that. I mean, I don't think that we 
I haven't, don't recall ever seeing a patient when I said, well, this person doesn't have HCM because they're 1.4. It's like, no, it, it, it looks like HCM. It smells like HCM. The fact that that one measurement doesn't quite meet it, but everything else, they have all, they have risk factors, they have symptoms, they have SAM, they have all these kind of things. Then you say, gosh, uh, yeah, that's, that's the variation in human biology that, that does not lend itself to rigid cutoff values. I'm not so much worried about the team at Mayo or frankly, most of our centers of excellence in making that diagnosis. What I'm very concerned with is that we make sure that the community understands no. if they don't see that magic number, it doesn't mean don't think HCM. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good point. And, and we do see a number of times where, where people are getting their diagnosis in the middle of their life. And they say, well, gosh, you know, is this going to keep on getting thick? And we say, no, you've probably had a heart muscle this thick since you were 20. And I said, well, how come they didn't pick it up on my echo before? Well, the issue is, you know, many echo labs are super busy. They got an echo because of something else. And the team put blinders on and focused on that. I think that what you're talking about in terms of the personalization based on individual characteristics and that kind of blinders on mentality, I think that as we see machine learning, artificial intelligence algorithms working not in place of but with the cardiologist to say, look, there's something that's not right here with this person. This actually looks like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, even though the wall thickness is 1.4. Or or this looks like cardiac amyloidosis, not hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, because we're seeing other things that are nice. So those things aren't ready for prime time yet, but they're coming fast. I think so, next year we'll see some big advances. When we talk next December and yep. we do the wrap up, we'll say, where, where did we go with AI and, and yep. machine learning this year? Yep. Right right now, the ECG-based AI tools are easier to do because that's a static signal you can capture. A moving heart images, it's it's, it's a lot of data, but it's all a math problem. And we have been really good at solving math problems over the years. So it it will get done. And I think we're going to see, it's almost like it's the AI becomes your fellow or your advanced sonographer who says, hey, look at this. I think this isn't quite right. And then we'll allow the expert reviewer to take a look at it or the clinician taking care of the patient and saying, oh, gosh, yeah, there's a lot in this patient's history that matches. This probably is HCM. I like the fact that it's BSA, so body size and weight measurement and, and the the research tool that they've created is strictly sex, BSA, and what your wall measurement should be based on the data set mm-hmm. in the UK of normals versus HCM. So I was really happy to see that. I like this tool from 2023. I'm mm-hmm. going to keep this one. So I'm looking forward to that being validated someday for clinical purposes and maybe use in trials. So I know that a few of us will be in New York City in March talking about echoes and trying to hopefully make things a little bit better for the next generation. But again, I double down on saying, if you're going to get your imaging done, your insurance is going to pay for one echo typically in a period of time. Make sure you're going to the highest volume center that knows HCM that you can get access to, to make sure that your imaging, at least every year or two years, is solid and we know what your anatomy is. There's my shout out to centers and echoes. Other wow moments in 2023, gene therapy. Big, big, big audacious goal. An individual has been dosed with a gene therapy. We have not heard word of patient two yet, but I suspect it's coming very, very soon. And then another company is going to come into this space. I can't steal their thunder because they're about to make a public announcement. They are a sponsor. I'll leave it there. Other companies are coming to the space too and going to FDA for approval. Exciting, scary, concerning, and exhilarating. These are these are my words for gene therapy. What are yours? Yeah, I th- I think those are good good descriptors for it. I've got an open mind, but it's guarded for for a bunch of reasons. If we were talking about a condition like cystic fibrosis, where every patient the the root cause is a single gene variant, gene therapy for something like that might seem really promising. But in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we've got 9, 10, 14 different genes that have all resulted in clinical HCM, hundreds of different variations within each of those genes that have all caused HCM. And that only explains about 40% of HCM that we see clinically. The science behind it is super cool to think about if it's successful and, and 
no harm done, which is very important. It will undoubtedly give us more insights into all the other patients who maybe don't have a myosin binding protein C variant, but it'll give us insights into some of these kind of things. But in terms of, is this a quick answer that's going to cure HCM? Not this single gene therapy, but it will advance our knowledge about it and could lead to other drug discovery that might not even be gene therapy related, but because of the things we'll learn out of these studies can learn how to target other mechanisms. So I think it's super interesting. I think your descriptors, scary, all those kind of things that absolutely is very uh, anxiety provoking to think about changing someone's DNA and wondering how that's going to have impact on them short-term and long-term. So I've been spending a lot of time learning about the different companies and the different spaces and all the different gene therapies that are coming. And like, I can actually see a day, it ain't tomorrow, it's not 2024, but there's companies that are working on PSK9 genetic therapies, mm -hmm. LPA genetic therapies, HCM genetic therapies, and diseases that could run in, the, like you can have all of these things, so I can see a day where we might be able to put cocktails together and you've got this and this and this, and we're going to give you one load and we might be able to solve a lot of problems. Yep. That's super cool to think about, but it's 10, 20 years away, yep. but I think it's coming. Yeah. I think it's coming. We have to prepare for it now because the downstream consequences could be very, very severe if we let this go with unbridled enthusiasm, and I always go back to Rick Nishimura, DDD pacing, unbridled mm -hmm. enthusiasm is my favorite, watch out words. Yeah. Hats off to Rick who retired this past year, right? You retired this year, yeah, that's, that's a milestone in HCM as well. It is. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I think we forget that the people that help drive the science are part of the milestones. Yep. Let's take a moment and talk about what you think Rick Nishimura contributed to HCM during his career now that it's sunsetted. Well, I mean, yeah, he's he's contributed so much. And, you know, I'm a biased individual because he's been my mentor and done the most uh, for me individually as any other uh, human being has professionally. First and foremost, Nish is by far the single best educator that I have ever witnessed, meaning he can teach physicians, physicians who are already experts in this field. He can teach them more about it. He can teach physicians who are trying to learn about this. He can teach patients about this all with equal effectiveness in a really humble way. And he, he breaks things down so they are, uh, become simple to understand and, and those types of things. He has been an advocate for let's not all jump on the bandwagon of something. Let's try to prove its worth. And so, as you mentioned, back in the days when dual chamber pacing was gaining lots of momentum as a easier way to eliminate outflow tract obstruction when medications didn't work, he and Dr. Marin had great conversations and they came up with uh, several trials to look at how effective pacing was or was not. So he was always an advocate for let's not jump on trends. Let's see if, if it makes sense. And then he's inspired and trained so many people. I mean, it's, it's, if you look, if you look at across the last two guidelines documents, at least a quarter of the authors were trained by Rick Nishimura. He's just a consummate professional, always trying to understand the root cause for why a patient has symptoms, because that was a mechanism by which you could help them feel better and not just rotely giving drug A because they have condition X. It's like, oh, what's, what's, what sub form of condition X do they have and why are they having that symptom? And therefore maybe, maybe drug C is better. Yeah. I, it's, it's just hard to put in words. I was taken by his educational approach in the very first summit. First yep. time I saw him present, I'm like, okay, this guy, not only does he understand HCM, but he knows how to talk to people. Yep. And, and he did break down very heady concepts. And it was a contentious time in HCM, you know, it, there was a lot going on and nobody really, it was the wild west. It was the early, mid nineties, late nineties. There's that, there's that aphorism that you don't really know something unless you can explain it to your fifth grader. Well, Nishimura can explain HCM to anyone, including fifth graders. So I think that he is one of very few people that truly understands hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and cardiac hemodynamics more broadly, because yeah. he can explain it to anybody. Absolutely. Wanted to acknowledge that was a big moment in 23 also, yeah. uh, his retirement. 
what other big items of 23 are you leaving the year with? I'm working on the guidelines this year, which will come out soon. So I don't know if we count that as a 23 or 24. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a good question. I think we're continuing to, like I said, there's there's all this interest now in doing clinical trials in HCM. You know, it started with Mavicampton, but now we're seeing it across other new agents. We've mentioned them already in this podcast, but the fact that we are seeing an emerging set of leaders in HCM academia who are moving us towards an era of trials rather than, well, let's use it and then retrospectively look and see if patients benefited or not. You know, it's just a new era for us. It, it, we, we didn't have the resources. We didn't have the, the tools 20 years ago to do that. And now we do. We have a bunch of very eager emerging HCM experts who are who are driving this. And it, that's really good to see. We've seen the establishment of the professional society, the HCMS, which mm-hmm. is a physician organization. Obviously, you're a part of it as well. But bringing those people together to work together on behalf of patients with, with this with this condition is, is a super important evolution of, of how we're getting together rather than just, oh, we're all friends and we get together at the meetings. It's, you know, putting some more formality behind it and and coordinating effort. We hit a lot of the big, big ones. I think the collaboration of, of centers working together with each other, you know, the network that we're building because we know what patients want and need and yeah, we yeah. have that space. HCMS is going to be looking into mechanisms that we can have professional credentialing on our HCM directors, which will lend in nicely because right now we're doing reference checking and backgrounds. And it's a lot of, you know, who do you know, who trained you? How did you get here? If they can take a certified test, uh, that just makes it easier for us. And that lets the patients know that, that, that they not only had a good training background, but they have certified themselves through testing through a, a formalized process. So I'm looking forward to working with HCMS on that going into next year. Yep. I can put in a shameless plug. So Please. one great thing that happened this year was that Dr. Martin Marin and I started planning the next HCM summit, which is going to be next October in Boston. The first three days of that are more physician-focused in content. And then Lisa is going to have a more patient-focused add-on dovetailing just minutes after the professional meeting ends to a patient-oriented meeting. So mark your calendars for the end of October. Let's talk a little bit more about what the patients can expect from that. So we're going to invite the patients to come in on Saturday. Saturday night, the HCMA will be hosting Saturday night at the summit for the participants of the summit. Some of the faculty will be back and forth between a faculty dinner. So we hope that they come join us for a little bit, but we'll be doing that at night, which is going to be, we're going to feature some patient stories. We're going to talk about our advocacy efforts. We're going to get the community together and hopefully bring some patients in from different centers so that they can explain how Center of Excellence Care has mattered to them. We might be even getting a couple of countries involved in that one. So that's going to be cool. We're going to talk about our HCMA international programming and how we're trying to develop other countries into advocacy programs, develop our KOL network, our industry network, and our patient network in different countries. So we're going to be talking about that. But when you arrive on Saturday, there'll also be some clinical trial rooms that you'll be able to go learn about clinical trials from some of the supporters of those trials, the industry representatives. So they'll be there to talk to you about those trials on Saturday afternoon. We'll do Saturday night at the summit. I almost forgot about the trial rooms. And then on Sunday, you're gonna be welcome to participate in the day's activities for the summit. And then at the end of the summit, which is at about 1245, if I have the numbers right, we're gonna take about a half an hour break We're going to repurpose the exact same room and it's going to become the HCMA's patient meeting 2024. And we're going to bring in some of our speakers from the summit because they're already there. And we're going to spend some time talking about patient advocacy, HCM advances. We're going to get some late breaking science straight from the summit. We're going to talk about what's new and we're going to have a little dinner that night going to be a nice fun weekend. I'm going to be exhausted. My brain will be on fire as will everybody else's who are interested in HCM. It's a phenomenal opportunity to network with, you know, the researchers, the clinicians, the practitioners. And now we're going to add in a patient portion, which I've wanted to do since the inception of Summit, but the structure didn't quite work out. And now it does. So we're going to be 
partnered and it's going to be a lot of fun and it's going to be a lot of education. So October, I think we're 27th is that last weekend. It's, um, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to kind of go with a Halloween theme for Saturday night at the summit. So it's going to be an unmasking kind of thing. There, there might be masks involved just so you know, okay. um, probably bourbon too, but we'll figure that one out. Yeah. So that's, what's coming up there. So next year in tales from the heart, we're going to be doing podcasting a little bit differently. Dr. Amen, Dr. Barron, Dr. DeFario will still be joining us for the regular segments, as will Dr. Lever. But we're going to add in more slots for more diverse voices from the HCM community. We have Dr. Matt Martinez coming up, Dr. Mad Mazuri coming up, and we're going to hear different perspectives on HCM. And we're going to help elevate the voice of the up-and-coming HCM next generation people. What generation are we really on? Is this the fourth or fifth generation? It, it depends on whether you count Dr. Braunwald as generation one and Dr. Marin as generation two or whether they're both generation one. Let's call them 1A, 1B. There was a gap in between the two. It was, yeah. But, but they're so closely linked in the work they did together. Yeah. We're probably on the fourth generation of emerging HCM leaders. I'm a little jealous of them because the world that they're coming into is so much better organized because of the work of generation one, two, and three of mm -hmm. organizing that. And it will be interesting to see where they take it next. Yep. I'm hoping that as we move forward and we understand that HCM is, yes, it's a heart disease. And for some people, it's mild. It doesn't cause a lot of problems. But for others, it impacts multiple aspects of their life, including psychosocial, mental health, and other physical issues that come as a consequence because maybe they were told to be sedentary for too long. I hope we're thinking more holistically about the person as we do with other diagnoses like cancer. You know, we take care of the whole person. We talk about food and nutrition and mental health, and we talk about all those things. I'm hoping that we kind of move there in HCM with the understanding that the cardiology team can't necessarily provide all of those resources because there's finite resources. So we need to bring in mental health professionals, more social workers, diet, nutrition, weight management, and we need to pull them all together to really support these families. And we're looking forward to building out more programming in that area specifically. I got some ideas, working on some things, can't talk about them yet, but hopefully they'll come to pass. I applaud the new generation. They're coming into a really cool space and they they want to be here, which I love. Yep, yep. They, they bring a lot of energy, have lots of great ideas. So it's, it's, it's really fun to see the field grow. I had an epiphany like earlier this year. I am now the age that Barry Marin was when I met him. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Feeling my, feeling my ears lately, but super thrilled to be here. Yeah. So it's... I think as you get a little further out from transplant, the reality of your mortality is something that you have to revisit occasionally. Thanks to science, technology, clinical trials, and a lot of smart people trying to solve really hard problems, I'm able to be alive today. Yep. And then I come to the end of every year and I'm like, wow, I might not have seen 2023 at all, if not for an organ donor and a lot of amazing science. Mm-hmm. So I just want to give an acknowledgement to the fact that I'm still able to be here and it's a tough journey. And one of the projects that I'm hoping that we can move forward on in 23 or 24 and beyond is a better understanding of post transplant journeys and improving transplant med. A lot of patients are falling to CAV, coronary artery, vasculopathy, and some of the older ones are, you know, they get cancers. So we really need to understand how to keep these hearts healthy as long as we possibly can and not be afraid to do clinical trials on heart transplant recipients. We, we scare people. They're like, you're kind of tenuous to begin with. We don't want to go messing with anything new. But I think we need to figure things out. I, I started a new drug this year. I started Rapatha because my LDL would not come down on its own. And now it's beautiful. So I may have had some genetic reason why my LDL wasn't coming down because I was doing everything, quote, right. So we need to understand more about the transplant world because I've left HCM, but we're still over here. And 
got to keep everything running. Well, I mean, I, th- I think I think you're hitting on it there. I mean, just because someone is diagnosed with HCM doesn't mean they aren't also eligible for vulnerable to other diagnoses and other health conditions. And so, as you said, we people with HCM aren't just HCM. They're human beings who part of them is HCM, but we also have to watch out for our risk for atherosclerotic heart disease and stroke and diabetes and sleep disturbances and all those kind of things you have to you have to take care of all of that point and 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 not just focus on the hcm obviously it's going to and for some people it sometimes is going to obviously be 100 of their focus because they're symptomatic and they want to get better or they have to make a choice about a defibrillator or not all those kind of things that's hyper focus at that time but this is a human being that has a rest of their life and so we need to think about the right levels of exercise the right diet mental health concerns, all those types of things are important to human beings who happen to have HCM. And I'm going to go back to our Recorded Warrior meeting earlier this week, and, and I'm going to reflect upon something that kind of came to me as an epiphany during the meeting. And it's a simple fact, but I think it may have lost some focus in the past couple of years. So exercise in HCM. We've collected more data. We did the Live HCM registry. We followed some people. The registry has some flaws. We are not really looking at senior elite athletes in that. We're looking at recreational activity and self-reported varsity level or better activity. So it was a good starting place and we've learned a lot. And I'm really proud of the work done there, but it's kind of just scratching the the tip of the iceberg. But if you look back, I was um, after DeMar Hamlin's cardiac arrest earlier this year, another big kind of moment for 23 in kind of our space, although he didn't have HCM. I look back at the Hank Gathers video of Hank's passing. I don't encourage you to go watch it, but it is publicly available on the web. And it is one of the most heartbreaking videos I've ever watched because he dies. You literally watch the man die. And nobody moves to do CPR. Nobody grabs an AED. They didn't exist at the time. It was 1990. And it was frightening to watch people wailing and screaming and crying as the man's dying there and they're waiting for EMS to get there, but nobody's doing compressions. That was reality 1990. We've gotten smarter. We've gotten smarter about a whole bunch of stuff. So we know he did have HCM. We know that he was being managed, but there was stuff there. What do we know about the difference between Hank Gathers and Demore Hamlin? And if you watch the videos of the both events, and I, I'd love to do a side by side, but it's just too damn depressing. We now can respond fast. Not only can we respond fast when we know that we need to, for those who have been diagnosed with HCM, we can do risk assessment and we can counsel and get defibrillators in and customize treatment and customize activities to the individual heart. So I don't think we were wrong as a community saying no competitive athletics in a certain generation, but we've learned more, we're smarter, we've evolved. They weren't wrong then, and we're not wrong now. We're evolving together. What do you think about that? Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, first and foremost, yes, the emergency response systems, the AED as a device in particular, makes recovery from a cardiac arrest much more likely for anyone who happens to have one. What we learned from the unfortunate events like uh, Hank Gather's death is, oh gosh, we need to have those things available at sports facilities, at sports arenas, at, you know, at all these places in Minnesota, they're in the squad cars so that if, they, if, the, if a police officer is the first one on the scene, they can do something about it. So we've learned a lot about not specific to HCM, but the science of resuscitation from cardiac arrest yep. uh, has changed a lot o- over the time that you and I have been working together. And then you're absolutely right. The the data we had um, from those eras, when you look amongst athletes, remember when you when you ask a, a research question, the population you study makes a difference. But so, the the data that says that among athletes, patients with HCM were higher risk than than patients who didn't have HCM. That's true. And 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 the lack of good resuscitation science and those kind of things led to recommendations that were excluded a lot of, of people from participating for their safety. But when you look now in, in the data that's been gathered more recently amongst human beings who are alive who have HCM, is it higher risk for them to be sedentary versus active versus very active? 
we're not seeing a strong signal that it's super risky. So both of those things can be true, but now allows us to evolve our, our practice. Resuscitation science has improved. Our ability to identify truly high risk patients in general has improved, but it allows us to have a more holistic conversation with patients about their wishes, their goals, their fears, all those types of things so that we can make decisions together. I wish I could say that I think we're going to get to a point where we can identify every single person at risk and protect them all the time. But that's still, I just want to set reality. We're all human. We're doing our best. We're evolving in science. We're getting more specific. But I don't ever believe that you can say zero risk. And, And I say this for very specific purpose to parents and loved ones who think that I've done everything and it still didn't work. Yep. It, it's hard to hear, oh, we can we can predict. We can predict really, really well, but not perfectly. Risk assessment is, is, has been, and always will be an imperfect tool. We can never expect us to, to be right 100% of the time. This person will have a cardiac arrest. That person will never have a cardiac arrest. It's it just, again, human biology is too variable for any tool to be that perfect. But what it does is it informs the discussions that we can have together and make decisions together. So completely agree. In our last few minutes, what are you most looking forward to in 2024? I'm looking forward to to getting results from some of these ongoing trials uh, so that we can further evolve the therapies available for our patients. I'm looking to see some of the real world data from Mavic Hampton. Uh, Now that we have so many patients on it, again, I use the word in the wild, so not in the auspices of a clinical trial, but being used in clinical practice, what happens in every new drug is then you suddenly learn a lot more that you weren't able to control for in a clinical trial. And now you've got lots of people on it, so you get more data points. And so we'll learn things. Are there consequences to one of these agents that we didn't anticipate because of trial design? Not intentionally, but just it happens. How many patients are really willing to to go through REMS program indefinitely for an agent? So we're going to learn lots of things out of those. The ongoing trials, like I say, for the non-obstructives, the emerging trials and the SGLT2 inhibitors, the fact that we're approaching these things and looking for new therapies for our patients, I'm looking forward to see what we learn in 2024. So you've been working on a paper for a little while. Yeah. Can you give us updates on updated guidelines in HCM? Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to your question, but there were European guidelines that were released this year. That, that was an important new thing in 2023. I think that they did something a little bit different. They kind of did a guideline that covered many cardiomyopathies in one document. So it's not purely an HCM document, but there is a pure HCM section in there. And again, people love to look for minutia to say there's discrepancies, but they're more alike than they are different. You know, one of the biggest debates has been around sudden cardiac death risk stratification and is the European method using the risk calculator right? Is the risk factor methodology that we use in AHAACC guidelines, right? Well, the Europeans said, look, even if you have a low score and you have one of those risk factors and you still, you can still consider putting in an ICD. It's just a matter of of, of whether you approach it from the left or the right, you end up in in a pretty similar spot in almost every. So it was just good to see some other thoughtful discussions about that. The Europeans really address LGE a little bit more, but I don't think they do as many MRIs. So I don't think it's as important to them. And then the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology are trying to move to a new guideline release methodology where things can be updated more frequently. They're not going to be these 10-year major redos, but as new science emerges, they can be updated almost like a living document. And so we're hoping to demonstrate HCM as as an exemplar to to do that because- We're moving fast right now. Yeah, when when 2020 guidelines came out, we we knew Mavic Hampton was in the works. I mean, we everyone was participating in the clinical trials, but we didn't have data to put it in the guidelines. So we're, we're looking forward to uh, getting more direction to clinical cardiologists across the country and across the world, guidelines on how to, how to incorporate this into the clinical practice. It's kind of hard to write the policies or the suggestions while it's being learned in real time. Yep. yep. So uh, 
have fun with that while you're at it, okay? We're looking forward to seeing the end result. So I do have to acknowledge that I am wearing my father's Christmas tie. Uh It's it's that time of year. It's still his knot. He's been gone since 2008. And I just pop it over my head every every Christmas season for at least two days. So I want to take a moment to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. I know many of us take some time to reflect upon those who aren't at the table anymore. But please take time to appreciate the ones that are there. Absolutely. And enjoy. Hopefully you have a couple little ones around you who are still into the magic of Christmas. I've got two little ones and another one on the way. Wow. 24, so I got something to look forward to. A little girl's coming in 24 to the family. All right. Fantastic. So we've got two little boys. We need, now we got a little girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I, I do have other three, three little nieces that are much larger young ladies now so <laughs> we got little ones so like now right. we got ones that are heading to high school oh my god big years coming up yep so steve thank you for a good year yep thank you uh, we've got a lot of amazing things coming forward in 2024 including meetings with the fda to put the patient voice at the center of clinical trials we've got our summit coming up in 2024 we're also already planning our october 25 meeting we're going to capitol hill on february 15th stay tuned for more on that come the first week of january and we are going to move some legislation this year we got a bill number in ohio to move the healthy cardiac monitoring act into reality michigan's coming up next we're going to revise some things in new jersey lots of stuff going on A big thanks to the entire HCM community, all of our Center of Excellence partners, our sponsors. I'm going to take a moment to kind of go off the top of my head. Thank you, BMS. Thank you, Cytokinetics. Thank you, Embrya Therapeutics, who had a good trial readout earlier this year. Thanks to Tenaya Therapeutics, First Gene Therapy and HCM 2023, Milestone, BioMarin. Stay tuned for stuff coming from them, Edgewise. And, oh my goodness, who am I forgetting? I'm forgetting somebody. I'm sorry. We'll put it in later. But thanks to the sponsors for making this possible. Thanks to our partners all over the world for bringing a vision I had in 1995 into clear focus in the past couple of years. It's been amazing. I'm exhausted. Four countries this year and three of them in three months. I won't be doing that again. But it was a really, really good year, even if I ended it with E. coli. (laughs) All right. See you Thanks so much. Yeah, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you, Lisa. Thank you so much.